You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guest. Olga Marina Segura is the opinion and culture editor at the National Catholic Reporter and the author of the newly released book, Birth of a Movement, Black Lives Matter and the Catholic Church. Previously, she was an associate editor at America Media, where she wrote and solicited articles on race and culture. She is a co-founder and former co-host of the podcast, Jesuitical. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Latino Rebels, Shondaland, Sojourners, Refinery29, and The Revealer. Prior to working at American Media, Olga was an intern at the permanent mission of the Dominican Republic to the United Nations. She graduated from Fordham University with a Bachelor of Arts in English and a Bachelor of Arts in Italian Language and Literature. She speaks Italian and Spanish fluently and was born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. In today's episode of Messy Jesus Business, Olga and I talk about her journey into writing about the Black Lives Matter movement and how the experience of 2020 gave her courage. We discuss what it means to be part of the church that has an ugly and racist history while being good and beautiful in other ways and what she hopes that church leadership will do about it. And we get into the mess of living a life of faith and advocating for justice. Enjoy. Hello, Olga. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you for inviting me on today, Sister Julia. It's a wonderful way to spend my Tuesday afternoon, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, so happy you're here, and I'm really excited to hear you share about your book, your new book. Congratulations so much on Birth of a Movement, Black Lives Matter, and the Catholic Church. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. It's honestly been kind of surreal because for so long, it was just me and the book and my computer and like rewrites and writing, editing, et cetera. So to see people engaging with it, I'm like, it's wonderful, but it's also kind of terrifying. It's like this weird, I'm also a first time author. So all of my insecurities are also like manifesting themselves in real time. But thank you. Thank you so much for your, for your kind words. And I think it's a real gift that you give, you've given this book to the church. It's important. It's timely. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and how how did you end up at this moment of writing writing this book? Sure. I was born in the Dominican Republic and my family arrived in the Bronx in the early 90s. And I was in Catholic schools my whole life. So all the way through pre-K, through my years at Fordham University, there was a slight stint in, in public schools, but my mom quickly, quickly put us back into Catholic schools. And so Catholicism very much informed my academic life and informed every part of my life. My mom's a very spiritual, spiritual person. And so it was just kind of something that I never really thought about because it was just like in the background as a lot of people who kind of grow up in the faith. And I didn't really start 
to think about the ways that my faith could play a role in what I wanted to do. And so after I finished at Fordham, I was grateful enough to land a job at American Media where I was fresh out of college, or not fresh out of college, almost a year out of college. And at that point, I was like, I graduated with a degree in English and Italian literature. And this was 2011. I was like, nobody is going to hire me. I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. And so I kind of just took this job at this Catholic Desert publication thinking, this is just how I'm going to pay the bills post-college. This is how I'm going to start to save before I sort of find my real passion. And then I was there for almost eight years. And just being in that space really made me curious about Catholicism in a way that I never had before, even at Fordham. So of, of course, the amazing Jesuits, we know the Society of Jesus, being in that very specific Jesuit space and being with a lot of priests who were introducing me to Ignatian spirituality, were introducing me to things like consolation and desolation, finding God in all things. And then being in a space where I was reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement, all of these things really began to helped me become comfortable calling myself a Catholic writer. And it took many, many years to be comfortable with that label, but that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't in that space, if I wasn't reporting on this movement, on communities that look like mine. And this started in 2014, 2015, when I started reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement. And this was at a time, this was six or seven years ago, where people were not really comfortable. You know how our world is, Sister Julia. People were not really comfortable with these terms back then. And then I got a book contract in 2019 that stemmed out of an essay that I wrote um, for American Media where I interviewed Alicia Garza, one of the founders of the movement and other black Catholics who had engaged with the movement but who had concerns about the church's racial justice efforts more broadly. And then I signed this contract, I came up with this outline, worked on my intro, and then 2020 happened. And that was the context that I was working on this book um, and it completely just, changed the trajectory of the book. I ne I originally thought that it would be this very, I say this often, but this is sort of the best way to describe it. I really envisioned it to be very gentle and very much like, this is a reported, this is a reported book and this is going to really help white Catholics in particular think about what role they can play in this movement. And then 2020 happened and it just became, no, 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 no. Like you need to talk to people about your faith. You need to talk to people about your spiritual struggles and contextualize this movement. And so, that is how I got to that point in, in, in my book. And that was sort of the short version of my evolution as a Catholic writer reporter. Wow. Yeah. I listened to all that and it just really seems to me like God was guiding you. And, you mm -hmm. know, one thing just really led to the next and there was mm -hmm. this great element of call and like you were able to arrive because of who you are and your gifts and your experiences. So, wow. Thank you so much for saying yes to the call. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for that language too. Like even that was something like being aware of God moving me in very specific ways. Like if I wasn't in that very specific Jesuit context that made me realize like, Hey, even in the moments when you feel really crappy or where you feel really insecure or you feel really lost, God is still at work there. And I'm so grateful that he really pushed me. Even when I had moments where I was like, am I a writer? Do I even have anything to say? Do people want to listen? And, were, and even, even now they're like the imposter syndrome can be very, very real. But again, I'm so grateful to have gotten the language to be able to just remind myself like, no, 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 God moves in these moments. God is also moving, even when it hurts, right? Like even when you're struggling, that is God at work too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I so relate to that imposter syndrome <laughs> as, an, as another <laughs> writer who is oftentimes like, what am I doing here? 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and we have to just recognize, I think those are demons that are working against us. And, you know, like, that's not the spirit of God. The spirit of God is a, a God who inv- God invites God is calling forth goodness from all of us. And, and through our inadequacies, we get to show up in those vulnerabilities. Yeah. So way to, way to like, uh, counteract all that negative negativity and just arrive. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I will say it took about 10 years. So it wasn't, okay. it wasn't this very quick, quick sort of process. It was a little quicker. I think 2020, again, I'm really grateful that that really kind of pushed me into a level of sort of fearlessness that I didn't have before. Mm. And that was the time where I really like internalized everything that you just so wonderfully described. Like, God is someone who inspires and God is someone who wants you to see the good that you can do. And I didn't fully believe that until 2020, until Mm. I was like, wait a minute, we should have a right. People like me should tell their stories. We should highlight our experiences and we should call out white people who don't, who are uncomfortable by that. Um, But I don't think that that would have happened. That sort of radicalization of my theology and politics wouldn't have happened in the context of 2020 and really just working on this book. Mm, mm. I want to come back to that because I can tell there's a story sure. under there. But before <laughs> we do, could you please read for us an excerpt from the book? Sure, sure. The reason I, I picked this specific excerpt is because I'm returning to this a lot, especially it's Lent. So Catholics, we love to talk about the cross. We love to talk about the power of the crucifixion. And this is a part that was not originally planned in the original manuscript of the text, but in 2020 kind of became a part of it. So this is from Chapter one, The March for Black Life, and it's a section called The Fight for a Liberated Church. No American institution, including the Catholic Church, is free of internalized white supremacy. Yet very few white Catholic bishops or faith leaders are willing to name and condemn publicly the ways that racist ideals have been internalized by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The Black Lives Matter movement taught me how to analyze and critique the USCCB's racial justice efforts from its 1979 letter on racism to its unwillingness to opine on issues like police brutality and abolition. By internalizing the movement's mission, I understood that as Catholics and as a church committed to the resurrection of Christ, we were to fight for the dismantling of the white supremacy that has existed within our church for hundreds of years. M. Sean Copeland, an emerita professor at Boston College, is known for her intersectional theological work, which covers politics, anthropology, and Black Catholic theology. In Knowing Christ Crucified, the witness of African-American religious experience, she writes that theology must work out the relation between the murderous crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and the murderous crucifixion of countless poor, excluded, and despised children, women, and men, adding, we who are followers of the crucified Jesus must protest the oppression and suffering of each human person and work for their flourishing. For the future of the church in the United States, our white leaders must join the struggle for black liberation. Amen to that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> there's, there's so much passion in there. Um, I kind of felt like you should have been on a stage with a megaphone, <laughs> like, <laughs> like at some huge Catholic church rally. <laughs> I will definitely keep that in mind. When the world opens up again, I hope you, you see me somewhere um, screaming, reading from the book with, with, a, with a megaphone. I like that image. <laughs> it's really good. Oh, so what happened in 2020? Um, I mean, we know what happened in 2020 collectively, the collective experience, <laughs> the pandemic started and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered among others. And um, yet, but what happened for you in 2020 that helped you to feel like you became radicalized and you know gave you all this courage? 
So what happened in my personal life, and I, I, and I mentioned this a bit in the book, my father became sick with COVID. With, he got really sick at the height of the pandemic in New York. And then my partner's father was also really, really sick. And despite my father not having very serious symptoms, having fever for days, not being able to breathe, all the usual symptoms that are now very much familiar to us um, a year later, even seeing how serious he was, he was repeatedly turned away at hospitals. He was turned away at hospitals in my parents' old neighborhood. He was turned away um, in hospitals in like the Westchester area, the New York area, New York City area. And seeing firsthand the very real inequities that exist in the healthcare system, even when it came out that the people being disproportionately affected were Black and Latinx Americans and seeing that despite the fact that we were being killed by this pandemic, we were being killed at the hands of armed white violence, he was still being turned away and being seeing this happen in real time and not being able to be in community with him, not being able to visit my family because again, we were in lockdown and just having to sit with the very real reality that this country was letting people from my community die, was letting, was willing to let people from our community die, was willing to not give our communities the resources that we need. Even a year later, my community, it's very difficult to get COVID testing. It's very difficult to even, there's no vaccine, vaccination sites near us. And to see that happening to your community, to see that happening to your father, to see in the middle of so much awfulness, still having to be faced with the mortality of a parent and not being able to be in community with him and not being able to support him in the way that I would have wanted at the time was really, really devastating for me. It was really terrifying because I was in a really, really dark place. I was constantly afraid that any call I got from my parents or that my partner got from his parents was just going to say that, hey, things have gotten worse. And so living with that constant reality, living with that very real fear and anxiety and knowing that this was happening to every single one of my friends, happening to all of the people that we knew, my sister's an educator, my best friend is an educator, and just seeing what they were going through, um, trying to figure out what it meant to educate in the pandemic, that really was the moment where I was like, oh, okay, this is no longer about making people feel comfortable. Because if I have to deal with every day some threat being thrown against my community, then the least that I could do was to make white people feel uncomfortable and to let them know like, hey, we're faced with the possibility of dying every day while you guys are worried about being canceled or whatever the language a lot of people like to use in this moment, right? And that pushed the book, and again, my politics and theology as well, into a more radical leftist sort of way that I hadn't expected in 2019. I think I was very comfortable saying like, hey, you know, people are doing the work that they need to do. Our church is doing the work. Our politicians are doing the work. It's okay to move in incrementally. Let's not, let's not push the church farther than it can go. And 2020 just made me completely reject that. I was like, absolutely not. Like, I am afraid of being killed or losing a loved one every single day. And that is the thing that guides everything that I do. And I wanted this book and my work more broadly to show that to people and to give my community the space to say, hey, someone's listening and I'm trying my best to like talk about this. And that was really having to deal with the possibility of losing a loved one and seeing a loved one be sick. That was really the, the 
my political awakening really began in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so you connected the dots to communities throughout the United States, especially, but obviously other places in the world who are feeling that every day and they have been for as long as they mm-hmm. exist, exist, that they're mm-hmm. under threat, that they're in danger. Yeah. When I was a newly professed sister, I taught for three years at a high school whose mission was to serve African-American boys. And Mm -hmm. that was, it was all about this, like take pride in being young black men and being the leaders that God made you to be. And uh, it was a real cultural immersion experience for me. It was a school here, it's now closed on on the South side of Chicago called Hales Franciscan High School. And it was a really formative experience for me. It, it, during that time was when uh, Trayvon Martin was killed, as well as others. And I grew up in the country in Iowa. I mean, I grew up on a goat farm. <laughs> and like, I mean, I didn't love growing up in a small town. And I'm not surprised I ended up in a city because I love diversity so much. And, you know, and I was trained well as a teacher. I studied urban education and I knew the, re- the social realities that that inner city schools were dealing with, yet I was not prepared for the experiences that my boys, as I called them, as I love them so much, they they were dealing with every single day that their lives were under threat. And it became quite common for my, my students during that time to you know, reluctantly admit to me that like, sister, I'm sorry, I don't have my homework because I was mugged at the bus, at the bus stop and they took my backpack mm-hmm. or, I'm, sister, I went into the Walgreens to get a poster board to work on that assignment you assigned, and they were just taking a guy out on a stretcher who was just killed or just shot mm-hmm. or, you know, and just, it, it was just mm-hmm. like, I had this real sense of like, wow, I'm living in a, in a war zone here. And, ha- and my white, like family members and friends and my, you know, people from my small town have no idea that this is going on, like just five mm-hmm. hours away from where I grew up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So it's increased my passion, my compassion and my, you know, my concern. And at times it's been sort of like this lonely experience as a white person. That's been really frustrating where I'm like, other people don't know <laughs> like how, and, and how do we help them to know about this? That this is, this is the reality that so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are dealing with every single day. Their lives are literally in danger. And at the same time, I'm struggling with my own clumsiness and awkwardness and consciousness that like, oh, I shouldn't say that, or, oh, there, there, my whiteness came out sideways, or I just was totally expecting someone to adopt to my white culture when that was inappropriate. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, I'm sort of constantly going against this tension, the struggle is, is very, very deep. Yeah. And I think, and I think that is something that I'm hoping people also get from reading my book, because I am still someone, even as a black immigrant woman in this church and in this country, I still have a lot of privilege compared to other people from my community. And so I try to tell people it's okay to feel uncomfortable because this is that's that moment of awakening and that moment of realizing like, oh, wow, the system is really rigged against a lot of people. The system is really built on exploitation, especially exploitation of, of margin, already vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. And it is okay to enter that at whatever point in your life you're in. Because when I was 25, I wasn't talking like this. Even two or three years ago, I wasn't talking like this. I was someone who was much more comfortable saying like, 
hey, I'm kind of a moderate, slightly more liberal, and here's the way that I think about what it means to be a Catholic and to do your faith in action. And the pandemic changed me. The pandemic was what really pushed me into, oh, no, no, your faith has to be intertwined with social justice work, with advocacy work. Mm. But I think that, that that discomfort, especially in that tension, exists for a lot of people, and not just white Catholics, too. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people are waking up right now the same way that I did and many of us did and are also struggling with like how do I get involved how do I get through you mentioned sort of your own clumsiness like how do I develop this language how do I get involved in this movement or how do I even know what I don't know right and I think that that's that's one of the things that I wanted this is another reason why I wanted to include my own my own narrative in the story because I want people like yes I want people to understand that there is this level of urgency people are dying and white Catholics should do this work But again, we are a Catholic community, right? We're supposed to accompany each other. And I want people to look at this book and say, okay, well, if this change happened to her, this evolution, this political evolution happens in 2020, then that means I can at this stage, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that I always try to tell people, like, I'm still new to this. I'm still figuring out what this means. I'm still figuring out in this digital age, what it means to be in community, what it means to talk about these things. And that's why I think it's important to have conversations like this too, where we're just like, hey, it's really hard to talk about these things. It's really hard to overcome like our fears and insecurities, but how do we do that as Catholics? And that's one of the things that, again, I'm really hoping that the book can help people find the courage to say, you know what, I want to get involved in this. I want to be a part of this. And I can be a part of this because our church is a part of this. Like every person has a role to play in Black liberation. They just need to have a church, a Catholic landscape. And I'm talking about like our institutional leaders Mm -hmm. and Catholic media more broadly, that is showing people how to do this, showing people how to do this work, how to have these conversations, how to push past those, like the awkward sort of polarization that so many of us are in right now and I think that it's very real what you're saying sister Julia like people people are struggling to figure out what it means to 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 get involved in this moment yeah yeah being a white midwesterner growing up in northeast Iowa close to Minnesota there is this thing about like don't offend people don't be too opinionated I'm not sure if exactly Mm -hmm. that's like part of the culture I grew up in but I think it is and it does sort of prohibit like the courage right I'm in a small a a study group uh, hopefully turning into an action group soon (laughs) about (laughs) dismantling racism in an organization that I'm part of and we've been talking about how tempting it can be for us to just become students about it and feel Mm -hmm. like we need to perfect our process and Mm -hmm. do things properly (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. learn everything we possibly can Mm -hmm. before we act. But the reality Mm -hmm. is like people are dying. This is, there's Mm -hmm. an urgency. We need to do this work now and we're, we're going to be sloppy at it and it's not going to be pristine, but even so like the kingdom of God is going to be reflected in it because it is going to be helping justice to be flourishing eventually. Right. Right, right. And you're absolutely right. In our church, there's this idea that in order for us to do things, we do have to study it and we have to figure out the process of how to do this and we have to be in dialogue and we have to then develop a process down the line. That hasn't worked throughout the church's history. That has not worked. Right. Um, And so we should be comfortable again, just like saying, you know what, let's try something and it might not work out, but let's try it anyways. And this is why people often wonder, they're like, 
when you say challenge the church to sort of step outside of its white of its whiteness, this is one of the things that I mean. I'm like, we have to create a culture where people are okay with messing up and figuring out what works but doesn't. And one of the things that has been the most consoling for me is just sitting with younger activists. A lot of them call themselves the Trayvon Martin generation because these are kids who became teenagers um, after his death and who really internalized the Black Lives Matter movement in a way that I even haven't. Um, and so I often follow a lot of activists who are like, you know, I am going to take this webinar and I'm going to start a group with my school friends, or I'm going to start this mutual aid fund, even though I'm just learning what mutual aid fund is, I'm going to start one and we're going to like start this fundraising initiative, or we're going to use TikTok to start this rally to do this like anti-Trump rally. Or I've heard students who are like, you know what? If the student debt crisis is not going to be solved, I'm not paying my student loans. I'm just mm. not going to do it. That's like a radical act for me. And I'm not necessarily saying I agree with every single one of those things, but the fact that we have a generation that's so willing to say, hey, let's try a bunch of different things. And if they work out, they work out. If they don't, like whatever, let's just keep trying. And that's the energy our church should have. Our church yeah. leaders should be like, you know what? We've done this wrong. Let's listen to the people who are doing this work and let's get really creative. Like, imagine what it could look like if the USCCB decided to like get involved on TikTok and decided to like have conversations with young Catholics. Like how, how awesome would that be? Our times are so polarized that it is difficult to be vulnerable and it's difficult to say, I don't know, or it's difficult to mess up publicly. But we should be okay doing that when it comes to getting involved in the fight for in creating a world that's liberated for all Black people, for all people from marginalized communities. This is how we're going to do that work. Like, let's get creative. Let's have fun with it. And fun in the sense, like, let's figure out what it could be for Catholics to get involved in this. We're a faith that loves talking about the Catholic imagination. Mm -hmm. We love talking about where God is moving, what God has created, and what that has to say about our faith, et cetera. Mm -hmm. let's do that with the with, let's do that with racial justice efforts yeah. like what does it mean to think about like if you don't like this movement what does it mean to come up with your own movement right, right. what does it mean to come up with a movement of young catholics who are organizing on twitter or instagram i just love everything you're saying about this and it makes me think of like splatter painting and you know how like when people are starting they kind of are like ah i'm nervous like what if i get it right. on the floor <laughs> and like, right. so what you get it on the floor <laughs> like right. like how do we create that freedom of like experimentation when it comes to social change but for, mm -hmm. but but we just kind of go back to these traps of what's comfortable of like oh i need to be i need to know everything I need to know before I can actually act. No, what? You get to learn as you go. <laughs> Welcome right. to humanity. <laughs> Welcome to being in a relationship. <laughs> hey, I want to uh, kind of talk a little bit about the racist history of the church. I mean, <laughs> we could talk for hours <sighs> about the church's complicity with uh, slavery, with white supremacy, colonialism. And really, I mean, uh, church history is, is very ugly. And yet people commit their lives to it, myself included. <laughs> and a lot of people turn away from the church because the church is so ugly, like has this ugly history. So what do you say to, to those who find church history and its racist sins so awful that they want to leave the church? I think when, when, when I hear, and I encou I've encountered Catholics who, who, especially Catholics of color, who, who are struggling with that, who have that tension within them and who are like, you know, 
it's not just that the church has this really, really racist and really toxic history. It's also that it's the silence, right? We talked about, we, you mentioned complicity. It's, it's not just, and this is where I think a lot of people, a lot of Catholics really struggle with it. They think, oh, okay, this is a history that happened a long time ago, or this is a history that the church, our current bishops, um, shouldn't have to shouldn't have to apologize for. But the issue is the silence, right? It's the unwillingness to first even teach this history. Because I mentioned this in my book, I was not aware of the church's involvement in the institution of chattel slavery until I engaged with the scholarship of Shannon D. Williams, who has been doing this historical work for many, many years, even before this movement was born and really trying to shine light on this history. And that's a problem right there. I've gone to Catholic schools my entire life. And why did it take me turning 30 to understand that? And that's a part of it. Like the church doesn't want to acknowledge that it has this history, but every American institution stemmed from chattel slavery. It stemmed from the exploitation of enslaved Black women, men and children, indigenous folks in this country, like that is the history of every American institution. And so for the church to be so unwilling to just say, hey, like we actually did that. We were extremely complicit in this, but let's talk about what it means to make amends. Let's talk about what it means to make reparations. And this is, I really appreciate Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, who wrote a, an article last year for Sojourners where she talked about the need for not just monetary reparations, but for spiritual reparations too. And I think that that is something that is so important for our leaders to do because yes, there is a very, very ugly history that needs to be acknowledged and that needs to be addressed. There needs to be an apology for that history, but there also needs to be reparations. Spiritual reparations where our pastors explain to us why even amid everything that has happened in 2020, in 2021 alone, why there has been no collective statement on this movement, why there has been no collective statement on abolition, why there has been no collective statement on policing, police brutality, right? They're clearly not listening to the faithful. So that just compounds all this trauma that the church compounds onto all the trauma that the church has already caused our communities. And so this, for people who, who want to leave because the church continues to be silent, that is very, very real. And again, I talked earlier about the anxiety and the fears that I was feeling last year and the fears that black and brown Catholics feel all across the country and all across the world, when you are experiencing those fears and you're experiencing what I, at this point, call a very real spiritual devastation, like I was a complete, I completely descended into like a form of nihilism after I wrote this book, because I was like, I feel so, so hopeless right now. And I feel so afraid to be alive in this country and to know that our faith leaders don't even have the courage to acknowledge that there are many times where I'm like, why do I stay here? Why do I stay in this church? And I know I, this is history that a lot of people are surprised with, but I've talked about this on Jesuitical. I have been discerning the process of, I grew up very, very Catholic, but I'm not baptized. And that's been something that I've been discerning for several years since I had the privilege of going to the Holy Land while I was at America. That's something that I was like, you know what? I want to join this community in this way, but I'm also like, why are you not listening to me? Why are you not listening to my fears? Why are you not trying to make the church a place that I want to be a part of? And so that is very real. That tension is extremely real. And I don't judge people who leave this church because this church has given us ample reasons to leave. But what has been grounding for me is returning to uh, Father Brian Massingale. He said this so beautifully when I, when I had the, the honor of interviewing him last year. He said, his mission is to help 
the church catch up to God. Like as Catholics, what we believe, like our church is already there, right? Like the idea of what it means to be a perfect church, like black Catholics, black and brown Catholics, indigenous Catholics, Asian American Catholics, all Catholics of color, this is our church. We are just helping the rest of the church realize it. We're just helping the rest of the church understand that we built this church, that we built this community and that we should be centered. And so that has been completely grounding for me in moments where I'm like, you should just leave this. I should just go join a Baptist church. <laughs> they really figured this out and have just created the type of inclusion and the type of radical dialogue from the pulpit that really, really has just like kept me sane um, in the mm -hmm. past few years. But again, I sit with that with Father Massingale said, like we are this church and we're yeah. not going to, we're not going to run away from it. And, and I, did an event recently where I spoke, I was speaking to a fellow black Catholic and she's like, you know, I really cling to the power of the ancestors. I cling to the people who really showed what it was like to be enslaved and still believe, be enslaved and still believe that God had something more for them, that this, our earthly pains were not the end. And so that's, that's what I cling to. And I, and again, I think it's very real. Like we know that people are leaving the church. Young people are leaving the church. A lot of people aren't comfortable with the church. And I think that's very real, but that's how I ground myself. And that's what I like to tell people. I'm like, you know what? I'm looking at the witness, the faith witness of other black women throughout our church's history who remind me that again, we built this church. This is our church and we're just helping it get to where it needs to get. Mm. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's a couple of things. So church is mm -hmm. people of God. Um, at one point though, the way you talk about it, I think I'm hearing some stuff about like an expectation that the leadership, the clergy, the bishops, you at reference the USCCB, mm -hmm. which for mm -hmm. the listeners that don't know, the acronym means US Conference of Catholic Bishops. So they're the United States body of, mm -hmm. of bishops. Um, and yet the church is the people of God. So mm -hmm. it, we, we can center your, you, your communities in the church. I mean, that's kind mm -hmm. of like the power to the people. We got this mm -hmm. through, mm -hmm. through our consecration as the people of God, we've been commissioned to do that work, to build up the mm -hmm. reign here mm -hmm. and now. So, so there is sort of this paradox of like, we need leaders to, to, to show us, to teach us, to, you know, model for us, absolutely effective leadership, servant leadership is important. And at the same time, like we can do this. So mm -hmm. that connects to how, for me, part of the reason why I stayed Catholic or I loved being Catholic or, you know, um, decided to commit myself to being Catholic is because of the word Catholic means universal. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I was privileged to travel and spend time in South Africa when I was in college and pray in these beautiful, you know, vibrant um, intercultural communities. And I was like, wow, this, this is the church. This, this is the church that I belong to. Th these are my people. Mm -hmm. This is the same mass as like in the mm -hmm. cornfields in Iowa. And isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. You know, and then I've had that same experience in other parts of the world. And it's usually not the, my encounters with the white church that like mm -hmm. helps me to feel like this is where I belong. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it's only going to help the church be healthier if we put um, the black Catholic churches, for example, at more in the center of, of our, of our faith life uh, as our, of our collective community. Yeah. So Amen. Recently, 
another white Catholic who I, I love and appreciate a lot called me to tell me that they were concerned that I was saying Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was so like bewildered. And <laughs> And I was trying to listen to like, why can't I say that Black Lives Matter? Because <laughs> they right, do, right. you know? And then I was like asking questions like, well, do you believe that racism is wrong? And they're like, oh yes, racism is totally wrong. So, okay, okay. So do you understand that like, it's one like um, uplifting the presence of a group that's been marginalized and just re- like stating the obvious that they matter? Uh, is a way Mm -hmm. to like be in solidarity and to like help, you know, work for for the change that they deserve. No, I don't get that. (laughs) Was kind of the response. And and then there was also this thing that emerged in the conversation that totally blew my mind. Um, Basically, I think it was probably a conspiracy theory about the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And Mm -hmm. Uh, it was something about like that they were um, devil worshipers or like pagan or something mm-hmm. really strange like that. So I was confused and I was like, well, if they're from the devil, <laughs> <laughs> it seems though that they're doing something good, right? I mean, they're working for the change that is needed. So mm-hmm. Help me understand that. And then they're, it, they couldn't. So <laughs> anyway, I, I, the, I was really shaken up by the experience and really disappointed mm-hmm. in, in, and yeah, really heartbroken to know that things like this exist, um, that ideas like that are out there. So help, can you please just clear those weeds? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And the reason the reason I was laughing as you were saying as you were describing that is not necessarily because I was laughing at the person who was right. saying it because first of all I don't know who the person is. But more broadly I'm laughing because that is such a common not necessarily that specific with the devil worshipping, but that resistance against any kind of engagement with the movement from Catholics is something that I have encountered since I started reporting on this movement and even now after writing this book, because there's just a complete misunderstanding about these founders and that is rooted in the very real misogyny that exists in our in our catholic church people see three black women two of whom identify as queer and immediately deem them as not worthy or not the right type of leadership or not the right type of experts whatever the word might be despite the fact that these are women who have been organizing since they were teenagers, young adults, these women have been organizing around housing justice, reproductive justice, and not like abolishing the family and destroying, not in the way that people talk about them talking about reproductive justice, like they've been doing holistic reproductive justice advocacy Mm -hmm. work, they've done immigration work, they did a lot of they provided a lot of resources for people during the when the pandemic first happened, help, encouraging people to like talk to politicians if they couldn't get um, if their communities weren't being funded or just how to like talk about organizing in, in the middle of a pandemic. And so I was just like to operate from there. It's always there is this very real misogyny in our church and it demonstrates just how unwilling people are to really, really engage with this movement because this movement is. There are three of these Black women, two of these women grew up in religious homes. They had parents who were very religious. Um, one of these founders has, has, when you go to the website, talks about being influenced by liberation theology, and she is still a practicing Christian. Her parents 
have done ministry work for African immigrants who have just arrived in the country. So they are very, two of the founders are especially very, very familiar with, with um, had very religious upbringings. And Alicia Garzo, when I talked to her a couple of years ago said, hey, if the church wants to get involved, there's room for them. We will gladly welcome them into dialogue because we're a movement that wants to create liberation for anyone and every, for black people and everyone is welcome in that struggle. And when people don't sit with that, people don't go to the website to read about how the movement was born after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. They don't read that the movement was supporting people in Ferguson after Michael Brown Jr. was killed by a police officer there. And they were providing a lot of the resources for people on the ground who were also being terrorized by police. And all of the people who were informed in Ferguson by these founders then went back to their respective communities and did their own kind of community building. And this is the timeline of the Black Lives Matter movement. These are the women who founded this movement. But again, people would rather believe lies than to actually engage with a movement that centers Black women, a movement that centers Black people as leaders, because that is something that is feels like such an opposition to a church that doesn't know how to remove itself from its own whiteness, doesn't know, hasn't done the work to talk about white supremacy. And that's why, unfortunately, we are going to keep seeing people who would rather believe that these women are devil worshipers than to actually go to the website, read the books that these women have written, read the articles that these women have written, watch interviews where they talk about these things. And again, it's not perfect, right? Anything created by human beings is not perfect, but that doesn't mean it's not worthy. Everything that cre is created by women who are advancing the world that we believe in as Catholics is worthy of us engaging with it. And it, this is why I'm so adamant about criticizing the bishops in particular for not doing this work, because I, I completely agree with you, Sister Julio. We are a universal church and what it means to be Catholic is not how the United States defines that. But until we see our faith leaders, start to actively have these conversations, start to publicly talk about their power, their resources, because we're talking about a body of mostly white men over the age of 55, 60, whatever the average age is for, for the bishops, until we start seeing them talk about power, until we start seeing them, until we start seeing them say, hey, we're gonna create space for people who don't look like us. And I'm not talking about ordination, right? I think people are always like, well, you want women to be ordained. I'm like, that's a separate conversation. <laughs> what I'm saying is like, there are ways for our bishops to do this work. And it's important for them to do this work because this is how we're going to shift white Catholics from believing conspiracy theories to believing that this is a movement that's worthy. Because if you, someone who has, who believes the, uh, the conspiracy theory that you just mentioned, they're not gonna listen to me. I'm not gonna change their mind. Right. Cardinal Dolan might, Cardinal Dolan might change their mind, right? Yeah. Like they, yeah. and, and this is why I'm always like, they need to talk about this because mm -hmm. they have control over a certain demographic in our church and those are the people who need to be challenged. So that's why I'm always like, yes, <laughs> people are doing this work, this amazing work. People are also willing to engage with this amazing movement. And this is where the bishops can come in, right? This is where the bishops really, really kind of need to pick up and be willing to to take this movement seriously and to show Catholics that they too should take this movement seriously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, if only one of them would listen to my podcast. <laughs> Just okay. So I have two more questions for you. In the midst of all this, what and and who you are and your story your experience and you know what you've learned and become so passionate radical as you say about um mm -hmm. what is discipleship for you 
That is a really, really great question because I think I often am like, I'm just a writer. I'm, I don't need to think about sort of my work as this kind of mission or to think about it more broadly. But I think discipleship for me right now is one, having these conversations whenever I can, especially with other, other um, white Catholics. I think that that's a part of what I'm doing right now. And I'm grateful to be able to like share my knowledge in that way. Um, and it's, I'll back up a little bit. So the reason I first started thinking about this as a kind of advocacy was I remember being really, really swamped in the fall. And I remember complaining to my sister. I was like, oh my God, I just, how much more can I just talk to white Catholics about racism? And how much more can I like do this? Like it's exhausting. And my sister was like, well, do you not see this as a mission? And I was like, well, what are you talking about? She's like, Olga, you're like talking to people who might have no other way to learn about this. You're talking to people who might be afraid to have these conversations in their personal life, but will gladly log on and watch you speak. So that's, that's a part of what I see discipleship. Now I see, I want to, and I said this earlier when we started talking, like sharing my experience and letting people know that this is what it means for me to be involved. It means supporting women who are on the ground. It means centering black women who are doing this work on Twitter or in, in my editing work over at NCR or in my book. Mm -hmm. And it means helping people know what it means to center black and brown people in our church. And I think that that's sort of the, the, the shorter answer. Like my, my mission, my vocation, my discipleship is just to help people figure out what it means to center women like me, men and women from my communities in our church, and to really help us radically rethink what it means to be Catholic in public life. I think people, we get so caught up with being an institutional church and doing all of these things really, really in a very specific way that we often forget that what makes us Christian is that we believe in Christ, right? We believe, <laughs> we believe that this person died for our sins and we believe that death is not the end of us. And we believe all of these wonderful things about, about our, our faith. And so we can center women and men and children like me. And that's what I see my work is. My work is to just keep challenging white people, honestly, just keep challenging the whiteness of our church and also simultaneously uplifting people from my community. Um, I don't want anyone to graduate from college or to enter professional life and have all of the insecurities that I had in this world and to have all the insecurities about their faith. And so that's what my discipleship is now, letting people know that they belong in this church, that we all belong in this church, white or black or Latinx, whatever. We all belong in this church, but we need to center some people more than others. And I'm here, that, that's what I see my work. I'm here to to challenge the people with power. I'm here to challenge the gatekeepers and really help our church become the universal community that it is not yet, but that it should be. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Your mission is, is to build the church that you believe in, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And exactly. by offering- You said that so much more eloquently than I did. <laughs> Some, I'm some, a <laughs> it's easier. It's easier for me to just reflect it back. But yeah, absolutely. You're, 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 but the way you're building the church that you believe in is by offering your gifts and showing up mm -hmm. and offering your authentic self, right? And and so isn't that an invitation to each of us to mm -hmm. to really kind of do a self-assessment about like who did God make me as and like what unique things do I get to offer to build up this thing that we all are creating together? Mm -hmm. Nice, mm -hmm. nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so for you, what is messy about all this? Honestly, I think it's all messy. I think 
every single part, every single day doing this work and every single day being in the church of more broadly is very, very messy. But for me, it's all really, really messy because there are days where I'm like, you know what? I'm really committed to this. I know I have a very clear idea of what I want to do. I have a very clear idea of how I'm going to talk to people. And then there are days when like my face is just not there. My focus is not there. Um, my mental health is not there. All of these things. And even in those moments, that little voice in the back of my head, shout out to those darn Jesuits who really got me. I know that God is in the background saying, hey, you can do this. Even in all of the ugliness, even in this, um, this like messy self-care nonstop cycle that we're all in, like you have to do this work. And I think it's all messy because I think it's every day, especially in the world that we're in, what it means to be in community, what it means to be Catholic, what it means to have a faith in action, to, to think about social justice, that changes day to day. And I'm finally become, this is the first time in my life where I'm finally comfortable with that mess. I'm comfortable with understanding that you're not supposed to have all the answers. You're not supposed to know everything. You're not supposed to have the quote unquote 100% perfect faith. Like this is a part of this journey, right? And I think that, I think it's all messy and I think it's all beautiful. And I think that I'm learning how to be okay with that. I think mm. I, I struggled with it for a lot of 2020. I think I had this idea, and not just 2020, just in my, in my 20s more broadly, I had this idea that faith had to be really, really clear. And you had to know who you are and know who, know who God is, know how to pray the right way, how to worship all the right ways. And I'm like, no, 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 our faith is messy, especially in the context of a global pandemic. Like everything is really messy. And there's so much beauty in that. There's tragedy in that as well. There's a lot of tragedy and devastation, but there's also power in that. That's what's messy for me. I think it's, it, I think it's all messy and I think it's, it's beautiful. I think that this is where my faith needs to be at this moment in my life. Well, welcome to messy Jesus business. <laughs> Way to be totally on brand. I'm glad you arrived <laughs> to the club and now you know. <laughs> Like, you know, I like <laughs> I learned a while back and <laughs> hence named my blog, you know, it's like that somehow it, it is there's there, I, th and I actually think it's part of white supremacy and like this very white culture that like mm. totally has ruined all of us that we somehow think that doing some of the most important things like living our faith or belonging to church, uh, requires that we have it all figured out. And, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. actually like the total opposite. <laughs> and, and like, um, I, yeah, even as a, a vowed, you know, Franciscan sister, woman religious, I am still learning and I am still figuring out how to, how to pray and serve and follow, follow God's will. And oh my goodness, Lent is just a disaster for me this year. Right. <laughs> like everything. I mean, it's just, and then and it's not an excuse like, oh, mm -hmm. it's messy. It's just messy. But it's rather a permission to be in that place of discomfort and recognize that that like is actually the point. And that's one of the places where the spirit tends to work the most. So welcome. Right, right. And I, thank you. Thank you. I, and I, I love, I honestly, I love how you said that too, because I think it's really, I've given myself the grace to not have all the answers now. Yeah. And this is like the first time that I'm actually like, oh, this is what grace means when you extend grace to yourself. Like, it's okay to just like feel all of the things that you're feeling. Cause you're absolutely right. This is white supremacy makes us think that we have to have all the answers, right? Because we live in a, in a capitalist society where we have to have the answers or we have to be producing. 
but that's not how faith works. Faith can't be pushed into this very capitalistic understanding of productivity that we have. And I love that. I love the just being in this community and being like, you know what? It's messy. Let's all be in this messy Catholic community together. <laughs> and it's and it is okay to do that. Yeah. Amen. Oh, well, Amen. Olga, thank you so much for coming to Messy Jesus Business and for sharing your passion and your knowledge and wisdom with us. Um, where can uh, listeners follow your work? Sure. So listeners can, I'll first start off by promoting my book, which I'm usually really, really bad at doing myself. So you can buy the book, Birth of a Movement, Black Lives Matter in the Catholic Church at Orbis Books, and you can follow my work um, or just my really sarcastic tweets at Olga M. Segura on Twitter. Um, and that's usually, I'm posting about my work, my thoughts, et cetera, whatever fun stuff I'm doing over at NCR. So people could follow me there. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And we are so glad that you're now, you moved from America to National Catholic Reporter. Way to work at like the excellent, <laughs> I don't want to be biased, but I love them. <laughs> and, and thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Sister Julia. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. When I reflected on the conversation I had with Olga, I started to consider what it means to have courage and to be vulnerable and to take risks to build up the reign of God, the reign of equality and inclusion and justice and peace. This reminded me of Paul's letter to the Ephesians a letter in which he's writing to the early church about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. I'm going to read a passage from that scripture now, and I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. And notice if there's certain words or phrases that stick out for you. Consider if there's a particular message that God wants you to hear. A reading from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, draw your strength from the Lord and from his mighty power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the tactics of the devil. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, with the powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens. Therefore, put on the armor of God, that you may be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to hold your ground. So stand fast with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and supplication, pray at every opportunity in the Spirit. 
To that end, be watchful with all perseverance and supplication for all the holy ones, and also for me, that speech may be given to me to open my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an absolute ambassador in chains, so that I may have the courage to speak as I must. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.